morning again. It's a joy to be together. Um, I thought we would kick the new year off with a four-year study on the book of Ezekiel. No, I'm kidding. We won't, won't do that. <laughs> we have some, some wonderful things lined up for this year. Uh, but th- this morning, I, I, I want to talk about something that um, I've observed over the past few years, and that's it seems like there is an uptick in, a, in, in kind of the adoption and widespreading of conspiracy theories. Is there not? We feel like there's more of them now than there ever have been. Uh, and I don't know about you, I'm, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. I tend to give more benefit of the doubt than, than maybe others would. And so there's a lot of the conspiracies that are floating out and around that, that I don't buy into. But there's one conspiracy that I have bought wholeheartedly with every fiber of my being. And that is the conspiracy of the McDonald's ice cream machine. I don't know if you've noticed this, when you, when you go through the drive-thru of McDonald's to get yourself a nice cone on a hot summer day, it seems like more often than not, and, and tell me if you've kind of caught into this, the machine seems to be broken a lot, right? I feel like every other time I go, they're like, well, it's down right now. We'll have it back running tomorrow. And that's kind of something that's true in all McDonald's locations all across the world. And actually, this is such a a conspiracy theory to the level that there are actually websites that have been created to track the McDonald's ice cream machines and which ones are running and which ones aren't. You can actually go online and find an interactive map that's, that's right now fully live in which people can report in whenever machines are up or down. So you can kind of be be a part of that and and join into that fun. And you can see right now that probably around 60% of the ice cream machines and McDonald's in all the country are currently not operating. There was a a documentary that I I watched about two years ago uh, by, it's kind of a YouTube journalist. He used to work at Vox, and now he he runs his own channel. It's a guy named Johnny Harris, and I don't really commend him or not commend him to you. This is not the point. But he did this 30-minute video deep diving into why it is that McDonald's ice cream machines don't work. And and I'll tell you this, we live in a world where I think we we lack kind of good, solid investigative journalism, and this was some of the best investigative journalism that I've ever seen. And so uh, if you want to watch that outside of the scope of the sermon, I will send that to you. But it's, it's fascinating. It comes down to conspiracy with, with the company Taylor that makes the ice cream machines. And they figured out that there's models of the same machine in all other fast food places. And they all don't break down, but the one that's made for McDonald's does. And it costs the franchise owners hundreds of dollars every year just to be able to fix it. And, and, and somehow that money goes back into the pocket of those who are executives at McDonald's. It's a crazy thing. Follow the money. And and you'll figure out you know, where things are. But, but the point is that I really haven't seen a whole lot of solid investigative journalism lately. And I had to go to a story about ice cream machines to find what I was looking for. And I am a sucker for good investigative documentaries. I just really love watching deep dives. You know, there's a whole bunch of things out there about even, even the church, some things that we don't like to own up to, but that are true in certain churches today that we have to come to terms with. And there's some, some investigation that's been done around things that have happened in the church that we're not so proud of. And there's all kinds of stuff like that. But, but I bring this up not because I want you to worry about ice cream machines, which now you're going to do, right? You're going to all go through the drive through and be like, darn, he's right. I'll shut down. But I bring this up because over the next several weeks, in January and, and February and into March a little bit, we're going we're gonna to look at the Gospel of Luke. And, and hopefully, you know that there are four Gospels, right? And, and each one of them has their own kind of thing that makes them stand out, right? I, there's, a, there's some stories that would tell you that if, if the Gospels were movies, right, Mark would be an action film, probably starring Tom Cruise, 
Mark is all about what Jesus did. And you see miracle after miracle after miracle, all the things that he did to people, the ways that he did things that no one else could. He's kind of the the superstar, the action superstar in the book of Mark. If you look at the book of John, John would be like the, the kind of strange independent film that won awards at Sundance Film Festival. Right? It's a little different than all the others, and it's, it's concerned about being in essence and who Jesus is. Right? He's trying to show how Jesus is God, and so it's this, he's kind of different than all the others. He doesn't write in the mainstream way. He's the most poetic of all of them. Right? If you look at Matthew, Matthew would kind of be this sequel. Matthew is trying to show all the time through the Old Testament how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. The book of Luke would be an investigative documentary. Luke is, in in every way, the the historian who seeks to put together all the pieces to do the deep dive on what happened. (coughs) He's not writing as one who who saw things himself, but he's writing as one who looked at all of the things that were happening, all of the accounts, all of the other things that have been written, and sought to investigate this Jesus and this gospel and to compile it all together in the most beautiful way. And so this morning, we're going to look at a little bit of Luke, right? But Luke, one of the things we have to realize is that he's not a monotone historian, right? There are some historical accounts that you would read and find yourself bored by, but that's not who, who Luke is. Luke has an agenda. One of the first things they tell you if you're going to do investigative journalism or, or work as a historian is that you shouldn't have an agenda. You have to come at it with as little bias as possible. Well, Luke doesn't write that way. Luke has an agenda when he writes, And we'll see what that is as we look at some of the opening verses of the book this morning. But each one of the the gospel authors has kind of an agenda as they write, some things they're specifically trying to get at, right? So for Matthew, it's it's kind of the theme of royalty, right? He's showing Jesus as, as king, as the king that was promised. When we look at Mark, it's more about power. Jesus is this immensely powerful being. He's God. He's more powerful than anything you could ever imagine. For John, it's divinity. He's trying to show that he is, in fact, 100% God and 100% man all at once. For Luke, one of the biggest themes that emerges is the theme of love. Luke wants you to know, among other things, really more than almost anything else, that, that Jesus is full of love. And we'll see that fleshed out a little more. And so this morning we'll begin looking at just the opening verses of John's gospel or Luke's gospel to set the scene for the next few weeks ahead when we dive deeper into this book. And we'll, we'll begin to see Luke's heart for people and how Jesus is the answer to all of their needs. And so let's stand together as we read just the opening four verses of the gospel of Luke and dig in just a little bit. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. First off, who is Luke? It's important to understand right from the outset that Luke is not an eyewitness to the gospel accounts. Right? 
of, of all of the writers. He's the one that is not an eyewitness. He wasn't there. He, he never saw Jesus face to face. He never witnessed the ministry of Jesus. But Luke is very closely connected in a lot of ways to those who did. His, his life spans within the time frame of, of, of eyewitnesses. He lived shortly after. He knew people who were eyewitnesses. As a matter of fact, he knew many of them. Luke was a physician by trade. He was a, a doctor. But we have to understand a little bit about the, the culture at the time. Uh, see, a lot of doctors in the time that we're talking about here, not all, but a lot of doctors functioned as servants of wealthy households, less than they had the kind of their, their practice that everyone would go to. And so it's, it's not 100% known, but it's possible, just slightly possible, that Luke served as a kind of private physician who was a servant to another, and it's possible that Theophilus was one of them. Now, those are speculations, so take that with the grain of salt that, that comes with it. But that, that kind of is how things functioned a lot of times. So Luke served as a physician. Uh, Luke was more than that, though. Luke was also obviously a, a theologian. I feel like if you, if you write a book of the Bible, you get to call yourself a, a theologian to some degree. That's kind of a, a you know, kind of helps. Right? He also served um, as a musician. Luke was a musician. It was known that he had kind of a, a love for music and, and things that went along with that. And so he had all these different roles that he filled. We also know that Luke, while he wasn't an eyewitness, was very closely connected to Paul. We can read in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about the fact that in the, in the end of his days, during his imprisonment, at all the way to the last days, that Luke was with him. And so Luke was a, a traveling companion of Paul's, closely intertwined, part of the, the missionary journeys that Paul would take and, and would therefore be well acquainted with the gospel, right, that, that the Apostle Paul was preaching everywhere he went. And he would have met many of the disciples, and he would have known people that knew Jesus, that had eyewitness accounts. And so we, we, we have to understand that, that Luke writes in the context of a highly educated physician who wasn't an eyewitness, but was very closely connected with people that were eyewitnesses. And so um, you know, Luke was one that wrote uh, the, these, these accounts down that he got from other people. He interviewed sources that we have in Scripture and sources that we don't have in Scripture. He talks about in his opening that there were many eyewitnesses and many people have compiled narratives. We're not sure what all these narratives are. Uh, some obviously made it into Scripture. We believe that one of Luke's large sources was the book of Mark. Uh, and based on the dates of writing, that, that kind of makes sense. Luke was written sometime after the, the Gospel of Mark was available, and so he would have had it when he was writing his own accounts. So when we look at all the research compiled, the book of Mark would be one of the pieces of research that is on Luke's table as he's preparing, right? And so the other thing is that he writes to Theophilus, and he calls him the most excellent Theophilus, which is a, a Roman kind of title term, right? And so the, the, the final thing is that he writes both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So we studied the book of Acts a few years ago, and, and you'll note that really the two are kind of one book in two volumes. Right? And you, you can tell that when you're looking at both of them, the writing is, is so similar, you almost can just read them together. Right? They're just separated in, in the order of, of the Gospels because we put the book of John in there, but really it's a, a two-volume account of both the time of Jesus and the early church. And we see in the book of Acts that Luke puts himself in there at times because he was actually around for some of those things. So he was an eyewitness to a lot of what happened in the early church as Paul traveled and all the things that came with that. 
So Luke was a, a, a huge historian as well. Right? He tells the gospel uh, by, by means of incredible detailed research. And, and the book dates to around the 75 to 90 AD time frame. And when we look at why was it written, the, the best theory that we have is based on verse 3, where it tells us that he wants to write an orderly account for the most excellent Theophilus. Right? We don't know who Theophilus was. We don't know when, when he was, where he was. We know really nothing about him other than that Luke wrote for Theophilus. So both the books of Luke and Acts are accounts that were given to Theophilus himself that we now get to, to share, but that were originally intended for him. Right? And, and the beauty is that when Luke compiles things, we see some things happen in the Gospel of Luke that we don't see anywhere else. Right? Because each other Gospel writer wrote their own account, their eyewitness accounts, but one person doesn't see all things. And so in Luke, we get some things that we don't get anywhere else. The accounts of Jesus' youth, for instance, are something that we don't see anywhere else. The very next set of verses that talk about the birth of John the Baptist and the details of how that came, how that came about, how the angel came in their old age and, and prophesied that they would have a child. All of those things, the accounts of, of Jesus as a young boy, all of those things are exclusive to the book of Luke. Stories like the, the thief, the penitent thief, or the prodigal son, one of the most famous scripture verses of all time, or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Some of these things are things we only see in the Gospel of Luke because he was a compiler, a very detailed historian. Right? And so Luke is by far the longest gospel, the most detailed, packed with account after account of Jesus' life anything that he thought relevant for the reader. Right? So for the remainder of our time today, I simply want to look at Luke's heart and motivation for this gospel. And I want to do this by looking at the four different kind of roles, jobs, careers that, that Luke really had. The, the fact that he functioned as a historian and as a theologian and as a musician and as a doctor, because each one of those pours into the gospel, and we see elements of each one of those in the way that Luke writes. And so let's, let's look at these. First, the historian. Luke is an incredibly meticulous guy. I'm a very detail-oriented and meticulous person, and so I, I appreciate the Gospel of Luke. Um, he is the star investigative journalist. He is not the one who would put something into this Gospel without a, a, a triple-confirmed source. Right? You don't have to fact-check. If, if Luke were to be put into Snopes, he would get 100%, because everything has been fact-checked over and over and over again. He was meticulous and detailed. His research was most likely funded by Theophilus because as the recipient, that just makes a lot of sense. And Luke begins his gospel by acknowledging that a lot of accounts of the things that he's about to write already exist, right? It says many have undertaken the narrative. And so the question is, well, why write another one? What is it that compels Luke to write his gospel when so many other accounts were already widely available? Why would a guy who wasn't there feel the need to write what he did? And the answer lies in what Luke sees as cohesiveness, right? The, the accounts to him were, were scattered, and he wanted to compile one story from many perspectives that told the whole story. 
Right? And so Luke says that having followed all of these accounts for some time, it seemed good to write an orderly account. And so the first thing to note is that Luke is about order. And as Presbyterians, we probably ought to love that quite a bit because we love good order. Right? We know and love the fact that God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. And so Luke comes at the, the gospel account, the things that Jesus said and did, and looks at them and says, there is a cohesiveness to this. There's eyewitnesses about these things and, and these things and these people are saying this and these people are saying this. And one of the things I'm noticing is it, it, there's a cohesiveness to it that hasn't seemed to have been undertaken yet. And so I'm going to write an orderly account. And not just a, a chronological order or an order that he likes to make up in his head or some kind of OCD way of putting things together, but a way that pulls together all of the things that have been heard and seen that have happened. And so that's the, the first thing to note is Luke is very, very historically accurate and orderly. He has an immense purpose and intention behind why he says the things he does and how he says them and how he orders them. Right? The next thing is, Luke is a theologian. Luke's not just trying to tell you a history account. He's not just a, a National Geographic employee who's trying to go back, or a History Channel employee who's trying to go back and figure out what happened and tell it to you in a, a matter-of-fact kind of way. As we mentioned earlier, he has an agenda, a very specific agenda. And he tells us what that agenda is in the very end of our passage. Right? He writes this orderly account for Theophilus, and then he says this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right? Luke has seen that Theophilus has been taught the gospel. The guy knows Christ and the accounts of what happened. He knows about Christ crucified and, and risen and ascended, and he, he understands and sees all these things. But because there's not a cohesive account, Luke is writing his gospel with the aim that Theophilus might not just entertain the things that he's heard, but have a certainty about the things that he's been taught. And so Luke writes to us as well for the same reason. Maybe you've been walking with Christ for some time. Maybe you have been unpacking the gospel for yourself. Maybe you're a fairly new Christian or not yet a Christian, and you've been looking through the various things you see in Scripture, and you think that sounds all good and great and all, but there's a, there's a lack of certainty you're just not quite sure. Luke's aim in being so meticulous and so detailed and so in-depth is not just because he's an obsessive, compulsive guy, but he's got an agenda. He wants to write such a compelling, detailed work with such a compelling amount of irrefutable sources such a compelling amount of things that can be seen in history and backed up that we might have not just an inkling of the gospel, not just a, a sliver of hope, but a certainty in the things that have taken place. <coughs> he wants you to not just think that Jesus came and lived and died and rose. He wants you to know. And that's the thing that drives the whole authorship of the book of Luke and Acts. He wants Theophilus to know, right? That's the goal of every pastor, by the way. When we come down from the pulpit, that, that we might have a people who just who know the truth of Christ. We don't just think, we don't just hope, we don't just have an inkling, but that know that there's a certainty behind the gospel and its truth claims that it makes upon our lives. Right? He wants us to know. 
And he wants every Christian to have utter confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next, the the physician. Um, You know, one one of the things that compels people to be a doctor is an immense care of people. Most doctors I, I know are, are people that care about the lives of others. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's why you become something in the medical profession. You, you, you become a nurse because you care about people. You become a doctor because you care about people. Luke, as a physician, one of the things he demonstrates is, a, is an immense care of the people that he writes about. And so you see some of the things come out in Luke that are unique to to his gospel that you don't see as much in other gospels. Luke writes more than any other author of a gospel combined about specific named individual people. He has all these accounts of Jesus interacting with specific people. Because for Luke, people aren't just people. People are individuals with with souls and and lives, and he cares about them on an individual level. And so he writes in a very detailed way, not just, again, because he's obsessive-compulsive, but because he loves people, and he wants to convey that Jesus loves people. One of the things we see Luke do more than any other gospel author also is write about Jesus' interactions with women. This was a, a time and culture where women were really kind of property, if you put a testimony of a woman against a man in any court of law, it wouldn't hold up. Even if it was almost provable to be true, the testimony would be kind of worthless almost. Women weren't considered to be worth a whole lot in that time. However, Luke is not like that. Luke recounts a lot of interactions that Jesus has one-on-one with women. And how Jesus loves women and sees them as full human beings, full of worth. And so we see in in the way that Luke writes his gospel that the value of people comes out in ways that no one else seems to bring it out. And it's not that the other gospel writers don't care about people. That's not it at all. But Luke has this at another level. Luke writes more about the poor, more about the marginalized, more about the destitute, the people who are needy, whether it's financially or in health or or in spirit. And and one of the things we, we see is that Luke has this immense emphasis on making sure that you understand more than anything that God, that Jesus, came for all. He came for all people. He came for all that might want to believe in him and claim him. He didn't just come for the, the religious elites for the righteous, the people that have kept all the laws, supposedly, even though they haven't. He didn't just come for those who seem to have deserved it, the, the aristocrats, the high class, the people of great wealth and fame and fortune. He came for all, <coughs> especially for the lost. And so Luke writes with a, with a doctor's heart that cares for the people, and he wants you to understand that while he might be a person who cares for others, there is no one who cares for the individual lives of all people more than Jesus Christ. And we'll see that as we go through the the book in the next weeks and months ahead. Jesus has come for all. That's why our series is called King for All. Not for some, not for those who come to church all the time, but for all. And finally, Luke is a musician. 
We see a, a lot of instance of, of song in the book of Luke. In even just the, the first two chapters, we see a whole bunch of liturgical things that we, we think of today, like the Magnificat or the Benedictus or the Nunc Dimittis or the Gloria. All of these, these songs of various folks keep coming out. And, and some of the words that we see come out in the book of Luke are things that we don't see as much everywhere else. Words like joy and rejoice show up infinitely more in the Gospel of Luke than in any other place. Because one of the things that Luke wants you to understand is that not just Jesus came, not just that he's a king for all people, not just that he is historically accurate, that he really happens, not just that it changes everything, but that there is a great and immense joy in the coming of Christ. And so the theme of rejoicing just resounds throughout the whole text as we continue to read our way through chapter after chapter and verse after verse. Luke is filled with joy at the things, at the witness accounts that he hears. You picture him interviewing people, having conversations with those who saw what Jesus said and did, and just finding the immense joy in all of it. You can imagine him writing his gospel with a smile and worshiping in the midst of, of the writing and recounting and organizing and ordering things together. Because Jesus came and it changes everything for Luke. All these things are the reasons that, that this is serious is called king for all. And I hope that over the next few weeks as we continue to dig in, as we start to look into the meat of, of this text, as we go into the new year, that one of the things that you might discover is that Jesus is your king. Not just the king, not just a king, but your king. That he came to this earth. That he was born. Not just to, to fulfill a theological construct or prophecy. He, wasn't just, he didn't just come to take sin upon his shoulders, which is the main reason we, we celebrate the gospel. But he came for you and for me. To show love and care and concern for us. Maybe you don't feel that loved. Maybe you don't feel like there's anybody out there that has a concern for you. Maybe you go through life and you go, I don't know that anybody really truly cares about you. What Luke will try to tell you as we move through the next few weeks is that you, you serve a God, a Christ, who sent his son to die for you, not just to die for your sins, but to bring you abundant life. He came to show that he loves you and he cares about you. That's the theme of the Gospel of Luke. The king for the neediest of needy, for the marginalized, for the unlovable, for the supposedly irredeemable and the lost. And this whole year, we're actually going to focus on this idea that Jesus is king for all. Right? We're going to see it over the next few weeks in the book of Luke to talk about how he's our redemption, but we're going to see it in a whole bunch of other places as well. We're going to look at the, the promises of the Savior and this idea of redemption after we get through Luke as we look at the book of Ruth. We're going to see how Jesus redeems our, our life choices, our speech, the way we think and act through the book of James. We're going to see how Jesus carries and cares for and redeems people in the midst of grief by studying the book of Lamentations as we get into the summer. And we're going to look at all kinds of other things like how actions are shaping us 
How God's commands to his people aren't just arbitrary rules. We're going to look in depth at the Ten Commandments and see how each one of those commandments is designed for our human flourishing because Jesus loves us and is our king. We're going to see how God is at work even when we don't see him in the book of Esther. And finally, we're going to look at how Jesus guards us against the harmful wolves that would enter our churches the false things that get taught as we look at the book of Jude. And that'll bring us to Christmas next year. So there you go. you got a sermon preview for the entire year ahead. I'm a planner. It's just how my brain works. But the theme of the entire year is that Jesus is a king for all. Not just for some, not for the few, not for the righteous, not for those who have perfect church attendance, but for all. You serve a God who loves you deeply and intricately, who knows you, who knows your pain and your sorrow and your trouble and who loves you. His commands for you aren't because he's mean and arbitrary, but because he loves you and he wants to see you flourish. He went to the cross to die for you out of a love for you and so that he might be holy, that we might glory in him. The prayer and hope is that this year you discover Jesus Maybe in some ways in anew, maybe for some of you for really the first time. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you chose to reveal yourself in many ways, but one of them being through human authors that are that gave us your word that is fully inspired by you authored by the Holy Spirit, but through the hands and the minds of different people who approach things in different ways. We praise you that when we open your word and you speak to us from it, we we get the personalities of those who lived at that time and we find ourselves in them in certain ways. We relate to some texts more than others because of the way that you created them and the way that you created us. And so we praise you in that light for Luke and the gospel that you inspired him to write through your Holy Spirit. We praise you for the love that comes and shines through in that gospel. We praise you that through him we can have an account of the things that you have done and said that we wouldn't get anywhere else. That through the account of Luke we get to know you more deeply. More than anything, we praise you that through Luke, we might find certainty in the things hoped for. We pray that as we go forth from this place, that you would shape us and mold us. We pray that you would be with us this week in the conversations that we have, that you would lead us to gospel conversations, that you would cause us to be on mission for you and inspire us, that your spirit would move us to be alive and active and breathing in this community that we find ourselves in until all who don't know you come to a saving knowledge of you. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,